Well, welcome back. It's been a while. Thanks for your patience. I hope it'll be well rewarded. And today is the first anniversary of the day this podcast started. So that's exciting. a couple of weeks, we ended the last episode with the Reverend Lewis Morgan sending a petition back to England stating colonists' grievances, and the company responding by entertaining some of the ideas but ordering the governor to send Morgan back to England. The investors were already far more in debt than they expected to be, but in anticipation of massive economic returns, they'd splurged and put together a second group of colonists even bigger than the first, sailing on the charity. Thomas Barrington and Lord Sayin Seal were the two people who took the lead in recruiting the charity's colonists, which included three new ministers. Hope Sherard, a Cambridge-educated minister from Kent, Arthur Rouse, John Pym's brother-in-law, and Mr. Dietloff, a refugee from the Palatinate whose first name is unknown. Apart from them, The most noteworthy people the charity brought were Henry Hallhead and Samuel Rishworth. Rishworth was actually related by marriage to Anne Hutchinson and was from the same area of Lincolnshire as she was, but we don't know much else about him. Hallhead, though, was mayor of his Essex town of Banbury and a long-term merchant, and business associate of Say. As mayor, he was known for driving the rogues and vagabonds out of town and fining people for being disorderly, and then giving that money to the poor. In an economically struggling, cloth-producing town, which was one of the most Puritan in England, this made him very popular. Banbury was definitely troubled, though. A few years before, its citizens had clashed severely with the Irish Catholic troops which the king had billeted there, and those clashes had culminated in a massive fire, allegedly set by the soldiers, and Hallhead was one of the citizens who lost the most in that fire. The next year, there were two riots and soldier billeting, immediately became an incredibly contentious topic, and emigration was starting to look like a really good option for people from the area. Lots of people from the region went to New England, but Say had convinced Hallhead to go a different route. He was in his 50s, and he moved his family to Providence Island to take over civilian leadership of the colony, along with Rishworth and Edward Gates. Gates had actually been one of Morgan's petitioners, but his other actions had indicated such dedication to the project that he was not only made a leader, he was also the only settler to receive 
new servants on the charity. Rishworth and Hallhead were made responsible for collecting debts owed to the company, and they would settle the eastern part of the island with Ditloff as their minister, while Sherard preached at New Westminster with Rouse as his subordinate. Now again, the voyage wasn't exactly smooth. Rishworth and Hallhead were forced to wait so long in Plymouth that the company had to give them 16 pounds to tide them over. And Arthur Rouse asked to borrow some of that money from Hallhead to help tide him over while he also waited for the charity, and Hallhead agreed. And when he was giving him the money, he ended up spending a day with Rouse and his family. And this day was Hallhead's first hint that things on Providence Island might not be as ideal as he thought. He discovered that Rouse couldn't even pray without reading lines from a prayer book, and non-rehearsed prayer was one of the cornerstones of Puritan belief. To make things worse, Rouse beat his servants as harshly as a soldier would. Hallhead confided to Ditloff, not too long after this, that he didn't think Rouse was good enough to be a minister, and Ditloff said that he agreed. At sea, the charity's captain was even harsher than the sea flowers had been. Illness ran rampant, but the doctor wasn't allowed to treat the passengers, and the captain cut provisions in half so that he could sell the rest in the Caribbean, He also took on bad water when he could easily have bought good water. When Hallhead protested this treatment, he was shackled to the Bilbo's. And Rouse supported this. Hallhead also heard Ditloff and Rouse singing profane songs on the Sabbath. But when he chastised them, Ditloff simply claimed that he didn't understand the words. Hallhead was skeptical of the explanation, but he let it go and simply hoped that the two men would repent. When the charity reached the island, its passengers brought the population to 300, but they found a settlement which firmed all of Hallhead's deepest concerns. Conflict hadn't exactly died down since the petition was sent to England. Rudyard and Morgan were still fighting. The current reason was that Rudyard said that Morgan hadn't returned some of the books that he'd lent him, and the dispute had rapidly descended into bitter insults about class and status. Then, Morgan refused Rudyard the sacrament. Rudyard ultimately got all but two of his books back, but the bickering was incessant and Rudyard was widely disliked. He drank too much, he swore, he defied Bell, and he was totally out of control. But the company backed him up, not only because they needed people with his skills, but because his brother, Benjamin, was one of the investors. Benjamin explained his brother's grievances, laying the blame on Bell, 
and saying that Rudyard was undervalued on the island. So the company took Rudyard's side against Bell. The more important conflict, though, revolved around Captain Elfrith. Elfrith, if I didn't mention it before, was one of the Earl of Warwick's leading privateers. He had actually been the man who had captained the treasurer, bringing the first Africans to Virginia. And he was the one who captained the treasurer when it was taking privateering supplies to Virginia instead of badly needed food and fishing equipment. He was also the one who implemented Warwick's reckless privateering strategies, which had caused the Virginia Company so many problems. And as Virginia turned more hostile to his activities, he had started to focus more on Bermuda, which was led by Warwick and where his son-in-law, Philip Bell, was governor. So given that background, it's not exactly surprising that in April of 1632, as the charity was departing from England, Elfrith was moving to push Providence Island toward privateering, even before its fortifications were complete. When peace with Spain had been solidified, the king had withdrawn Providence Island's letters of mark, so privateering was no longer legal. But without asking permission, Elfrith had sailed to Cape Gracias a Dios on the Central American mainland, and there he had attacked a Spanish frigate. And then he had sailed off in the frigate and left his own pinnace behind. It wasn't carrying anything of value. It was just an act of provocation. Then he had invited another privateer, Diego El Mulatto, a notorious Cuban-born privateer who had turned against the Spanish and then sailed with the even more famous Dutch privateer Pete Hein to hang out at Providence Island. This was dangerous both because it would show an outsider Providence Island's weaknesses and because it could invite yet more Spanish reprisals before Providence Island's fortifications were complete. If the Spanish took the island, they would most likely kill every Englishman there, even without the privateering connection. So it was extremely dangerous for the residents of the island, and there was only one benefit to this, quite frankly, insane course of action. And that was that if the Spanish learned of the English settlement, they would attack. And if they attacked, the Providence Island Company could apply for letters of reprisal, which would legalize privateering again. So Elfrith was jeopardizing the entire venture in the hopes of plundering Spanish ships. Bell was, by and large, loyal to his father-in-law, but he cared about the safety of the colony, so he moved against Elfrith. And he told Elfrith to write a letter explaining his conduct to the company. 
Elfrith complied, and along with his explanation, he sent the most precise map of the Caribbean that the investors had ever seen. He said that he'd been compiling it for years, but kept it for his own personal use, but now he felt that the company could use it. Other sailors had died because of how bad the average English map was. Plus, his map showed the only stretch of Central American coastline which wasn't occupied by the Spanish, the Mosquito Coast and Trujillo Bay, not too far from Providence Island. This, Elfrith argued, was the benefit of his actions, and this is why the company couldn't afford to lose him. And, he noted, there were still places he hadn't explored, too. He asked for forgiveness and asked that he be allowed to function as an admiral free of civilian constraint. And the argument was compelling. The investors let Elfrith off with barely a slap on the wrist, simply telling him that he had sole authority in his role as admiral, but that he was not to do anything without the explicit instruction of the governor and council. Then they made him captain of a new fort, sent him some more servants, and hinted that there may be privateering in the future. So on the whole, Elfrith had been rewarded for his reckless endangerment of the entire venture, and Bell's authority had been undermined. The new colonists immediately found themselves pulled into existing power struggles on the island, and they brought their own shipboard disputes. The first thing that Ditloff did when he took his place as minister was to refuse Hallhead the sacrament, and his justification was that Hallhead was a hypocrite because he had said that John Wells, one of the ship's crew, was a carnal man who would sometimes swear, but that on a separate occasion, when Wells's friends were around, he'd called him a religious and honest man. And Ditloff alleged that Hallhead had borrowed an apothecary rock without returning it. I mean, it was so mind-bendingly absurd that you know that there had to be some extreme hostility behind it. And when Hope Sherard intervened, Ditloff told him to mind his own business and demanded his own independent congregation. The company actually had to get involved in this dispute, and they backed Sherard's analysis of the situation and refused Ditloff an independent congregation, at which point Ditloff left the island never to return. Hallhead also found himself in the middle of a more personal struggle, resenting military service. He saw people like Axe and Rudyard as being too similar to the officers who had antagonized Banbury. He defied their authority, infuriating Axe. Bell had no power over the conflict, not even to act as a mediator, and the ministers were completely unable to smooth the situation over. Ditloff was locked in his own struggles, 
Rouse died within a few months, but even when he was still alive, he quickly lost respect when people saw how brutally he treated his servants. And Sherard was devout, but uncompromising on a level that rivaled Bell. He was fully prepared to deny the sacrament to anyone who wasn't acceptably Christian, and that dinged the colony's military leaders particularly badly. They formed a faction against him, and the same sorts of people who had rallied against Morgan started to cling to him, sharing their complaints from the most trivial to the most fundamental. And so, like Dietloff, he created an independent congregation, and like Morgan, he became yet another center of conflict. Elfrith was also bickering with everyone at this point, so a fed-up Governor Bell expelled both of them, his minister and his father-in-law, from the council. In response, Sherard condemned him as a source of arbitrary power, though he had no real power at all. In the midst of this faction fighting, there was another minister on the island. Henry Root had been intrigued by the Providence Island Company's mission to found a Puritan society, but he told the investors that he needed to visit the island before committing to moving there. The company paid for him to spend a few weeks there so that he could decide, and his analysis isn't surprising. He said that Bell and the military men had strayed too far from the Puritan ideal, and that he wouldn't go to the island unless there was some level of self-government there. Rishworth and Sherard gave their wholehearted endorsement of Root's analysis and proposed changes. By 1633, the island was in such chaos that the company decreed that any individual counselor could punish the most common crimes like swearing, drunkenness, and Sabbath breaking with predetermined sentences on the testimony of just a couple of reputable witnesses. Appeal to the full council would be on a double or nothing basis, and they put more responsibilities on Bell. In fact, more responsibilities than any governor could reasonably handle, and this without giving him any more tangible power. He was pretty much supposed to monitor and correct the behavior of every person on the island. Bell was such a rule-oriented person that he was actually happy to do this, and in fact he did it so intensely that it wasn't long before the company was telling him to ease up, and follow their instructions less closely. So for Bell, his goal was to maintain order, but he had no power, and his instructions were a moving target. He was given an impossible job, and he wasn't compensated for his service. He kept asking for the promised compensation and enough power to effectively govern, and he was never given either. And it really seems to me 
that the fundamental problem he was facing was that the Providence Island Company didn't know exactly how they wanted to govern the colony. They had the idea of a Puritan utopia, and they knew they wanted it to be imposed from the top down. But they didn't have a concrete plan of how to achieve it, so they didn't know exactly what instructions to give him. There's a lot to say about the faction fighting on Providence Island. First is that it was a universal experience in new colonies. All traditional power structures were gone, people had differing ideas and expectations, and reduced ability to govern meant reduced ability to arbitrate, which meant reduced ability to minimize conflict before the smallest thing became a major controversy. The investors had studied former failures carefully, and in many cases they participated in them, but they had seen Virginia and Bermuda's faction fighting and decided that the solution was to keep all power in their own factionless hands. In reality, that made things worse because there was no chance of immediate arbitration or mediation to nip conflicts in the bud, and there was no ability to respond quickly to criminal activities. And in addition, the company found itself faced with the decision of whether to anger the people whose skills it needed the most or to uphold the rules and governmental structures that it had set to preserve order in the colony. Hallhead and Rishworth in particular had experience in English local government, but they weren't really given a good way to use their skills. It was such a bad situation that when he first arrived on the island, Rishworth wrote that he couldn't see the good in any of the settlers. And only after a year did he write saying that he'd underestimated some of the more honorable company. Still, he emphasized that the disorderly state of society was disturbing. It may be ironic, but one of these future parliamentary leaders' biggest mistakes was eliminating self-government. The other thing about this faction fighting, though, is that if we flash forward to the, spoiler alert, parliamentary victory during the English Civil War, the winning side was extremely divided. All of the colonists and investors that we're discussing will go on to support Parliament. But within the context of this situation, they couldn't seem more different. Even before the war started, if we look at New World colonization, we can see these ideological divisions. Puritans within England formed a united front against the king. And only after the war do we really see the dramatic divisions. But looking at the differences between Puritan New World colonies and within those colonies, especially Providence Island, which attracted such a variety of people, 
we can get a better feel for the enduring ideological divisions among Puritans and parliamentarians. But back to Providence Island, the economic situation was no better than the social and political one. On the charity, the company had sent settlers instructions to experiment with a massive variety of plants and semi-industrial processes. They were told to move the cows and the goats to a small nearby island to protect valuable plants and then to plant castor oil, rhubarb, canary vines, medicinal vegetables, dye plants, cottonseeds, pomegranates, tobacco, guinea pepper, or grains of paradise, other fruits, plus explore the mainland for assorted types of silk grass and gather samples of the two types of cotton that grew naturally on the island, even though the colonists had said that they were useless. And they said that the colonists should plant sugarcane for their own use and ornamentation, even though the colonists had said that it couldn't be grown commercially. And it was up to Bell to ensure that the colonists were doing the basic things to maximize tobacco quality, like curing the tobacco for up to a year if it was poor quality, and cutting off the smaller leaves as the plants grew. In 1633, they sent the colonists a whole new batch of commodities to experiment with, most notably matter, a versatile dye plant, which was extremely valuable, but took three years to produce its first harvest. And then they were also interested in wild potatoes called mechoacan, and the company sent them a dry piece to use as a pattern to show them how to slice and sun dry the plants, pack them in dry casks, and return them. But here's the thing, or at least one thing. With virtually none of these crops and commodities did they allow experienced people to show the colonists how to grow them, because these people didn't fit within a model Puritan society. The exceptions early on are that they did send Richard Lane to help plant the matter, and the Bermudians came with knowledge of how to cultivate tobacco. Investors had the idea that seeds could just be put in the ground and they'd grow, and that's simply not the way it works anywhere. It's not the way it worked for North American corn, or for early tobacco, or for the sugar cane which would later fuel the Caribbean economy. One of the reasons that tobacco was so ubiquitous was that there were actually people around who could teach new colonists how to plant and process it. So even when prices were crashing, it was at least something that people knew how to produce. But the investors didn't understand that growing crops was a skill that required some knowledge and training. That alone could condemn the colony to failure. Add to that the fact that most of the suggested plants were labor-intensive and required work at the same time of year, and the fact that investors were throwing 
idea after idea after idea at the colonists without giving them time to really experiment with any single one. And plenty of valuable ideas may have been overlooked simply because they didn't grow immediately and effortlessly. Investors put a lot of time into finding all the best seeds, but they put no thought at all into actually growing them. And they didn't want to divert any profits to license people to produce and market the commodities. It was only later that they realized that they needed someone to teach the colonists how to process the Mechoacan. And at that point, their solution was to order Bell to detain somebody on the island until he showed them how to do it. So not hiring or incentivizing someone to come in, just forcing somebody to stay and give them a demonstration and then go on their merry way. To stay and give them a demonstration and then go on their merry way. To make matters even worse, the colony hadn't sent as many servants as it had promised. This continued into 1633, when the investors twice promised and twice failed to send new servants to their colony. They said that because the colonists had been negligent in sending back valuable commodities, they couldn't expect further investment in the form of servants. It's the same old accusation and with a familiar consequence. To compound the problem, some of the servants' terms were starting to end, not only leaving the island's leaders without enough labor, but also reneging on promises to the servants themselves, who were supposed to get land leases and servants of their own on completion of their contracts. Though the company was demanding economic growth, they weren't providing the labor necessary to achieve that. But unlike Jamestown, Plymouth, Barbados, or Bermuda, Providence Island settlers proposed a solution. Slaves. And this was a new development. There were Africans in the colonies at this point. Not that many, but a few hundred. The Earl of Warwick owned quite a few of them himself. A lot of them by this point were probably living slave-like lives, but English colonies as a whole had been very reluctant to adopt slavery. The Spanish had millions of slaves, and the Dutch were dabbling in the trade, but the English had kept themselves at least somewhat distant from it. Indentured servitude, though that in itself was often involuntary, was by far the preferred labor source. At the same time, when privateers ended up with slaves as part of their loot, they had to go somewhere. The status of Africans was increasingly in a gray zone, but colonies pushed the issue down the road, uncomfortably unsure of what to do about this weird new situation that was all around them. But now, powerless in a chaotic and dangerous environment, Philip Bell 
looked at slavery and thought that that could be the solution to our problems. And the company agreed, though with a couple stipulations. They only wanted 20 to 40 and only one per family because runaway slaves would be a serious security risk for the colony. But in 1633, they ordered Sussex Kamek to buy some slaves from Dutch privateers for a good price, preferably paid in local commodities. 